relationship with God, a root of bitterness towards someone else, a feeling of loneliness or depression, the pain we've felt from a moral failure. It hasn't always been there. We've watched it wither. And we come into the presence of God with an aching need for God to do something. We come with our disability. Note also that the disabled man came in passivity. Unlike many of the people who came to Jesus for help, this man did nothing. He didn't cry out like blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't lunge for the tunic of Jesus to touch its hem like the woman with the hemorrhage. He didn't climb a tree like Zacchaeus. He just sat there until summoned with no demonstrable initiative. According to Mark's gospel, the man did nothing. He said nothing. He felt nothing until Jesus in sheer, sovereign, surprising grace singled him out and made him whole. People still come to church like that. We come just as we've come many times before. We sit passive, sometimes even passionless and bearing pain. And then Jesus, impelled by nothing but grace, approaches us and he applies his power. Let's observe third that the disabled man came in expectancy. Do you expect something to happen in your heart? Do you expect God to do something in you, to heal something, to help something in your life, in worship this morning? This man with a withered hand must have expected something. He did go to the synagogue that day and surely... He, like everybody else in town, knew Jesus would be there. So somewhere in his heart was enough belief, enough expectancy to get him to worship that day. If anything was ever going to change in his life, it would be where God's people were assembled, where God's word was spoken. The closest thing to hope in that bustling cosmopolitan town of Capernaum was that little synagogue where the people went to meet with God. Maybe somebody here this morning has that kind of hope. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't think that much of churches. That's all right. Even the best of us aren't that great. Maybe you don't think much of preachers because you've seen the insincere kind, but you also have an almost inexplicable, visceral feeling that if anything is ever going to be any better in your life, it will be where God's people meet and where God's Word is spoken. <clears throat> I hope you've come with that kind of expectancy this morning. All of us have needs. We have wounds. Our world is not ideal. Our lives are not ideal. We are not ideal. We're not whole. Something in us is withered or is withering and we're powerless to reverse it on our own. But we come to the house of God. 
with expectancy. Thank God the Lord Jesus meets us on the Lord's day. Amen. He is here with us. And he says to us, as he said to this man in verse 3, come here. And he says uh, to us, as he said to the man in verse 5, stretch out your hand. Our disability comes into contact with his ability and he makes us whole. There is hope for those of us who come here admitting our need. But that disabled man was not the only one in worship that day. The Pharisees were there. They were there for a different reason. So second, when we come to Jesus feeling superiority, we magnify human tradition. The Pharisees were in Capernaum and they're with us now. They don't come with a sense of personal need. They come to observe, they come to critique, and to criticize. Mark introduced the Pharisees early in his gospel. In his second chapter, Mark wrote that the Pharisees criticized Jesus for forgiving sins, they uh, criticized him for eating with sinners, and they criticized him for not following their rabbinic traditions. By chapter 3, Mark didn't even call them by name. He just wrote, they watched Jesus so that they might accuse him. They were the Pharisees. The word for watched is only used six times in the New Testament. And this is the only time Mark used it. It's a special word that means to observe carefully, to scrutinize, to watch scrupulously that's the reason the Pharisees were in the synagogue that day most of us are born classifiers we naturally categorize things and people we compare we classify we pigeonhole we stereotype it starts early in our lives when they take our toes and they say this little piggy went to market and this little piggy stayed home. And we, from that point, categorize everything. A lot of people bring their penchant for classifying to church with them. They classify the music. They classify the preaching. They classify the people. They come to, obs to, to church observing and classifying and critiquing. But Phariseeism is deeper than that. It not only categorizes things at church, it seeks to control them as well. The, the forms, the appearances, the traditions are paramount. And we want to maintain those. And that becomes more important than the needs of people. I want to state two facts about Pharisees, and our outline, I've called them the hyper-religious. And there's nothing wrong with being hyper-religious if that means that we have great love for Jesus and we therefore always love to worship Him and love to be with His people and to be in His Word and in prayer. But the Pharisees were hyper-religious in a different way. They were hyper about the traditions they had added to God's Word. They were hyper about the religious forms they observed. That day, 
in the synagogue, the hyper-religious were aware of the power of Jesus. Verse 2 says they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. There was no questioning whether Jesus could heal on the Sabbath. They were wondering if he would heal on the Sabbath. They were aware of the power of Jesus. Are you aware, by the way, of his, his power? Second, the hyper-religious wanted to criticize and destroy Jesus. Verse 2 says they wanted to accuse him. Verse 6 says they reported what they had seen to the authorities so they could destroy him. Jesus' power was a problem for the Pharisees because of the possibility that he could use his power to upset their traditions, to interfere with their institution. And they were more concerned with their traditions and institution than they were for compassion for a man in need. Rabbinic tradition stated that the only way it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath was if human life was in imminent danger. They brought that ridiculous man-made rule to church with them and the result was that they scrutinized what Jesus said and did more interested in how little God would do there than in how much God would do. If they had known God half as well as they had known their own tradition, they would have bowed before Jesus and given Him worship as God the Son and said, Lord, help us and help everybody here today. And when Jesus healed the man, they would have rejoiced that a man with a withered hand was made whole. But instead, no, they cracked down with their cramping man-made rules and their misunderstanding of God and God's Word and God's day and God's Son. And they saw themselves as more important than Jesus. And so they magnified their traditions. Wish we could say their spirit is dead today. You know, their attitude, that attitude is way back there in the first century of Galilee. And thank God it's no longer with us today. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been around too long and I've seen too much to say that. Quite a number of years ago, uh, some ladies in a church where I pastored made some banners for worship, like these lovely banners you have here. They were, you know, expressed scriptural praise to the Lord as these do, and they, they were beautifully made. And sometimes we uh, displayed them in worship and sometimes we didn't. And uh, we were approaching a Sunday that was a special, traditional kind of Sunday in which uh, certain people would be recognized in church as they traditionally were on that Sunday each, each year. And um, some people in the church thought it was appropriate that we take the banners down because they'd never been up for that day. And some other people in the church wanted the banners to stay up. And I truly did not care whether the banners were up or down but I do like everybody to be happy. But um, I knew that if we took them down, some people would be unhappy. And if we left them up, some people would be unhappy. And so I just decided to pray about it. Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I didn't think God really cared that much about whether the banners were up or down. But um, I did think God cared about the unity of the fellowship. And so I prayed, God, 
please let me know what to do that would be best. And I, over a period of days, just felt convicted. We'll leave them up for that, for that day. And so after that, uh, and it became known, a, a member of the, um, you know, leave the banners up group um, <laughs> confronted me and uh, told me how wrong I was and uh, he lost his temper and shouted at me and accused me of not loving the people who agreed with him. And it was ridiculous, but it did hurt. And um, I told him what I really wanted to do was to please the Lord. And in pleasing the Lord, I'd really like to make him happy too. But it, it didn't look like I was going to be able to do both um, at that particular time. And so I guess I just need to do the thing that I thought would please the Lord. And on that Sunday, you know, I wondered what might be happening in the hearts of those who had been so passionate about something that seemed so small to me, their opinion, their tradition. Did they come in the presence of God with their disability, saying, God, help me, heal me, forgive me? If we're not careful, our procedures, our traditions can get in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us. We can induct ourselves into the, the way we do things around here committee. You're, you're familiar with that committee. Their motto is, come weal or woe. The only status we know is quo. And... Their spirit is the spirit of the Pharisees. It is still with us. And it asks how, how narrow we can make God's grace instead of how wide, how limiting we can make His power among us instead of how liberating. One of the worst sins we as a church can commit is to magnify our tradition over God's truth, our preferences over God's power. When our Lord comes to church, He uses any procedures or He cuts through all our procedures to heal people who are broken enough to admit their need to Him. All of us have not ideal lives and Jesus can help when we come admitting our need. So third, Jesus comes with his ability and accomplishes his intention. That's what Jesus did on that Sabbath day in Capernaum. And that's why he went to the synagogue. Let's observe in passing that he comes to us at church. Jesus does come to church even when we don't deserve it. Mark recorded Jesus' habitual attendance at the synagogue in chapter 1, verses 21 and 39. You ever thought about how difficult that must have been for Jesus, the greatest preacher and teacher in the history of the world, went to a worship service where he knew in comparison with him the teaching and preaching would be aggressively boring? Jesus, the one who knew more about the Scriptures than anybody in the church, He inspired the Scriptures, would go there to hear them taught by someone with lesser 
knowledge. Jesus, who knew God better than anybody in the church, He is God, and yet still He went. He went in spite of the fact that many of them did not even want Him there. Still, you know, should we go to church? Well, if we're followers of Jesus, we should. He went. So should we. If we want Jesus to help us, we should. Because He meets with us at church. He's here to heal. Second, He comes to us in grace. The man with the withered hand did nothing to earn the healing Jesus performed. Jesus simply chose to bless the man as an act of sovereign grace. And Jesus blessed the man in defiance of those who opposed this healing. Verse 4 says that he asked a question about healing, and his question was met with stony silence. And don't miss this. Six times in his Gospel, Mark records that Jesus looked at someone. Something about the way Jesus looked at people struck the young John Mark. And here Mark wrote that Jesus in verse 5 looked at his accusers with anger. Grieving. Jesus was angry over the lack of faith on the part of people who should have had faith. He was angry at the religious leaders who had the audacity to dictate to God how He should heal and when He should heal. God can heal our disability. He can do it at church. And if we don't believe that, God is not indifferent about our lack of belief. Jesus was angry with those who stood in the way of this man's healing. When He he comes to us at church. He comes to us in grace. And He comes to us with healing. Jesus confronts us at the point of our disability. And He makes us whole. Verse 3 says, Jesus told the man, Come here. Literally, it is, rise to the center. He, Jesus told him to get up and stand in the middle of the crowd that was gathered in the synagogue that day. Verse 5 almost gives the impression that Jesus was about to embarrass the man publicly. He told him, stretch out your hand in the middle of this assembly. Show us your disability. Show us how malformed and how weak you are. But Jesus never comes to embarrass us or to belittle our struggles he comes to heal us he wants to connect our disability with his divine ability his limitless power we may have tried multitudes of times to improve what is withered to reform what is paralyzed but this time the difference is that we're not doing it. He is doing it. And whatever we do is in obedience to His command. He wants us to stretch out our guilt so that He can forgive our sin. He wants us to stretch out our bitterness so He can replace it with His love. To give Him 
our loneliness so that He can put us in touch with the perfect companionship of His Holy Spirit. He wants us to show Him our depression so that He can give to us His limitless joy. To give Him our vocational frustration so He can put us in touch with His purpose for our lives. It doesn't make any difference whether He's in the synagogue physically or in the church spiritually. He is here and He is here right now. And when we come to Him with our disability confessing that something in us is not ideal, He can heal. That's what He's here to do. Why are you here? Shall we pray together? We're all bowing our heads in the presence of the Lord, having heard the Lord's word and having read of the power of Jesus to heal, His grace to heal. We've heard of our need to admit our weaknesses and invite His power. Now I wonder if we're willing to do that in His presence. Maybe there's one here among us, maybe several. You've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. He is God Himself. Manifest as a man among us, the man Jesus, who lived a sinless life, performed many miracles, and then became the sacrifice for our sins on the cross and rose again on the third day. And He is alive today to give life to all those who put their faith in Him. If you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that today in the time we've dedicated in this time of worship to a time of invitation to invite you to come to Jesus. Maybe you know for sure that you are a Christian. Jesus has saved you. You're walking through life with Him. But you also have a special need in your heart this morning. Something going on in your mind or in your life, in a relationship, in some struggle. And you want to lay it before Jesus today. May I invite you to do that? Say, Jesus, I need your help with this. Maybe you even want to come and pray at this altar this morning. Or maybe it's not you, but it's somebody in your life you can think of struggling with something right now. And you want to spend some time before you leave worship today saying, God, help this person. God, bring your healing. Let's allow God to work in us and among us before we leave this morning. Let's speak to Him honestly and open ourselves to His healing power. Lord God, we give this time of invitation into Your hands. We do want to be honest with You. And we want to know the power, the help, the healing that only You can give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.